And so I kind of focused on those first. For example, I wanted to separate the juvenile unit from, it was then combined with a drug unit um, because I believe that juvenile justice is among the most important things that we do. And I wanted to have a, a person in charge of that um, unit who was really committed to working on issues of juvenile justice and trying to do a better job, if you will. And so I did um, require the, the chief of that unit to commit to five years in the unit um, at a minimum so that we had consistency. Welcome to episode 21 of People Are The Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact. Today's episode features Denver District Attorney Beth McCann, the first female DA in Denver's history who is redefining the path to justice. She was a four-term state representative prior to her current role, and she is unbelievably accomplished, having served in many roles in Colorado while improving every community she's touched along the way. Specifically, her restorative justice and diversion programs are setting examples for the nation on new, less harmful ways to tackle crime. DA McCann and I discussed her career journey, changing laws at the legislative level and seeing them in action as DA, paraskiing, and more. Here's Denver District Attorney Beth McCann on People Are the Answer. DA McCann, thanks so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Can you start off by telling the audience where you're based and what your current role is? Certainly. So I am in Denver, Colorado, and I am currently the elected district attorney for in, in general, what would you say motivates you in your work? Well, um, our primary role is really community safety. And so um, we look and I look at ways that we can make sure to keep our community safe and to um, hopefully help prevent crime, but also hold people accountable for criminal behavior and um, provide alternatives in appropriate cases to help change people's approach to life and to change their criminal behavior with the, you know, the overarching goal of keeping the community and the people who work and live in Denver safe um, and free from crime. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, I'm curious, where did you grow up and what was it like there? So my dad was in the army and um, we lived in several different places growing up. Um, we lived in Taiwan, we lived in Japan um, and we lived in mostly in Virginia or in the states around Virginia. My family, both my parents are from Virginia originally. So when my dad retired from um, the military, from the army as a Colonel, he went back to his alma mater, which was Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia, and became the assistant commandant of cadets because they had a cadet corps at that time. So um, that's where I went to high school. And that's really what I would call 
where I grew up. So eighth to eighth grade to uh, senior in high school um, was in was in Blacksburg, Virginia. Got it. Yeah, that sounds like a, an interesting journey. You got to experience some other cultures before you know getting into high school. Yes, um, it was interesting, and I think it uh, contributed to my interest in traveling and wanting to see as much of the world as I can. So, um, you know, when you're young and you travel, you, you become more comfortable with it, I think. Um, and so that helped. Yes. So when you were in high school in Virginia, did you have an idea of where you wanted to take a career or were you still just sort of figuring things out? I was still figuring things out. <laughs> I, yeah. I was always, though, even then interested in government and um, politics and um I was the uh, vice president of student council, for example. Um, and so I, I always had an interest in helping people in the public service arena, but I really didn't have a sense of how I would do that. So you, you have a prolific resume and, um, you know, I generally start off talking with uh, guests about their early career. Um, you've held a lot of jobs. You know, I, I have a list here, law clerk for a U.S. district court judge, um, going up the ranks of the DEA's office, becoming a deputy and then a chief deputy, doing some private practice, um, Denver's first female manager of safety in the early 90s, uh, eight years in the Colorado AG's office, uh, becoming the deputy attorney general for civil litigation and employment law. So I know that was a lot. Uh, it's a lot, you know, for our, our listeners as well. But um, I didn't want you to have to dig into the details of each one of those. But just maybe to talk about your early career in general. Sure. So um, I did decide when I was in college that um, I was interested in law school, uh, and that came about by meeting a woman lawyer who was actually the dean of a college that I attended for a short period of time and was very impressed with her and thought, wow, I wonder if I could do that. So, so decided I would try law school. And so when I was in law school, again, I was interested in public service and also in criminal law um, and litigation. So my early career was really oriented toward um, litigation and courtroom work, um, clerking for the judge and then working as a deputy district attorney here in Denver, I uh, got into court quite a bit. Um, and then the private practice piece was uh, an opportunity to learn a lot more about a different, different areas of law and continue in the courtroom experience. Um, but that didn't satisfy that public interest need <laughs> or desire that I had. And um, so an opportunity to came, came up to go work in the web administration as the manager of safety. And that was appealing to me because I did want to get back into public service. And I was all, always interested in, in criminal law and public safety. So, so continued in that uh, vein and um, then got an opportunity to work for Ken Salazar over at the attorney general's office, which was also um, kind of a litigation focused position. So, and then, you know, the legislative work was really kind of the culmination of all those things, being able to actually, you know, pass laws and be involved in policy making for the state um, was 
really interesting and challenging and exciting. Um, but we do have term limits here. And uh, um, the district attorney was term limited at the time, as was I. So that opportunity came up and I thought, well, you know, I have some interest in public safety and improving the criminal justice system. So this is a great opportunity. Um, so I chose to run for district attorney at that point. Now that goes all the way through my career, not just the beginning, but it's kind of a no, I, that That's very helpful and kind of gives us a good perspective. And um, I am curious to go backwards a little bit and talk about your time in state Congress. Um, I saw that you were a, four, a four-term state rep for District 8. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's the term. Uh, in Colorado, you can serve four two-year terms in the state house. You can also serve four two-year terms in the state senate. So I could have run for the state senate at that time, but I chose to um, come over to the DA's office. But uh, yeah, that was really um, quite quite interesting uh, and eye-opening in terms of all the different issues there are statewide. Um, it was really quite interesting. Yeah, I can imagine that you really get to see the breadth of the policies being dealt with in the state. And, um, you know, I saw that you worked on laws related to animal welfare, healthcare, DUI laws, guns, domestic violence, gender bias, human trafficking, you know, among many other things. And um, I, from what I saw, you had a really important um, subjects in your focus? Yeah, well, I have always been a proponent of women's uh, abilities to do what they what they want to do and what they're able yeah. to do. So it was important to me to um, focus on uh, gender discrimination issues. Um, and also my interest in criminal law was an impetus for several bills having to do with criminal justice. Um, and so I ended up becoming chair of the health committee. And that was how, um, you know, I was able to get some bills passed about um, premium costs for women and men, you know, versus men and making sure that um, maternity leave was covered in insurance policies in Colorado um, and working on getting the, um, the Connect for Health Colorado public healthcare um, opportunity available, making that available. So, um, you know, we were there when the Affordable Care Act was being discussed and um, this whole idea of a public option, we were able to start in Colorado, uh, which was great. So, and then I had some other uh, bills having to do with juvenile justice and criminal justice and gun issues. Um, I, um, yeah, I noticed a lot on, on juvenile justice, which I thought, you know, was that's very important, protecting youth rights and helping them avoid the juvenile justice system and limiting the use of isolation for juveniles. Uh, what sparked all of your efforts in that area? Well, it's um, a belief that our criminal justice system needs to be um, more flexible, if you will, and have different options for different people who, in, who end up getting involved in the system. So, you know, our system tends to be pretty punitively oriented. Um, and, and yes, there is a place for punishment for criminal behavior for sure. 
But there are also um, other factors that we ought to be looking at. Uh, with juveniles in particular, we do know now that the adolescent brain is not developed um, as completely as it is when people hit about 25. And the areas of the brain that are least developed are those involving judgment and control, <laughs> impulse control. So, you know, you see, and we all know, having been adolescents ourselves or having raised children, that in that period of time, kids are likely to take more risks. They're likely to be very subject to peer pressure. Um, they don't understand the consequences necessarily of their actions. And it's much more impulsive behavior than you might get with an older person. Um, and so I became aware of all that, um, you know, in the legislature, uh, researching some of these issues. And so probably one of the most significant bills I did was the one to allow for judges to make decisions about when a juvenile case can be heard in adult court versus juvenile court. Um, before that, it was pretty much up to the DA's office to decide. Uh, and now um, we still have discretion in deciding when to file as an adult, but the, the defendant, the juvenile, always has the right to ask for transfer back to juvenile court. Or we can ask for a transfer to adult court if we get farther into a case and think it's appropriate. And it's interesting, you know, when you're in the legislature, you pass these laws, but you don't actually get involved in their implementation. <laughs> so now that I've been here, I see that that law is working and that, you know, we ourselves have to have these hearings for transferring cases. Um, and so, you, you know, it's interesting to see the impact of uh, a law that you passed. Um, yeah. And then the other area in criminal justice that I was particularly concerned about is, is gun safety. Um, and so I was part of the group that passed the five bills in 2014, it was 2013, anyway, 2013 and 2014, that um, put some additional limitations on gun ownership. For example, um, now you can't have a magazine that's over 15 rounds um, and requiring um, training, gun safety training to be uh, done, part of it has to be done actually in person instead of just online training. Um, and we, I, I'm also very interested in domestic violence. So we already had a law that said domestic violence offenders weren't supposed to possess or purchase firearms, but wasn't really being enforced. So we passed a law that put some more teeth into that um, law. And then when I got here um, and talked to our domestic violence folks, I realized that the law wasn't really being enforced. Um, so we uh, set up a program here in this office where I now have a full-time um, investigator whose job it is, is to look at those cases and see if there is a likelihood that the person, the defendant has guns and then uh, bring that to the attention of the judge and get an order which is based on the law that has been there for a while, but um, then order that the person has to relinquish guns during the pendency of the case or during the pendency of protective order. So again, you can do something at the legislature and then see how you can implement it 
uh, in real life and how it can impact people. And I believe that I do believe that we are saving lives from from that bill. He um, last year collected 142 guns. So, um, you know, that's a lot of guns. And 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 we um, believe that, you know, victims of domestic violence are are particularly vulnerable right after they've reported it and someone has been arrested. Um, and then when they get released, they go back to the same environment. And that's when it's very dangerous for a victim. So, so anyway, you know, there are um, interests that of mine that I could do something about in yeah. up in the, the legislature, but also, you know, once I got here to make sure the laws were being followed. And human trafficking is another big interest of mine. And again, I was able to get a bill passed that strengthened our human trafficking laws. But then again, when I got here, we didn't have a human trafficking unit. So I was able to start a human trafficking unit, which has now been able to bring a number of pretty complicated human trafficking cases. So, you know, it's, it's all kind of intertwined in a way. And all of those changes, you know, have positively affected many lives. So I I really appreciate all of your work on those important topics. And, um, you know, you mentioned that you you did have the option of running for state Senate if you wanted to, but decided to, to move, you know, kind of onto the field in the, the D as the DA, um, the, what made you want to kind of go away from legislature and, and move into the DA's office? Well, um, while you can get a lot accomplished in the legislature, in terms of actually impacting individual lives and um, you know impacting day to day at the local level, the DA's office has much more impact because um, we're handling cases every day for individual people um, and victims of crime. So it's just a different it's a different uh, kind of role. And I also liked, um, you know, running my own office or being in charge of my own office. Um, When you're in the legislature, and this is by design, you have to get a lot of people to buy into your idea and your bill to get it passed. And so um, it gets, it can get quite political. And that part of it, I did not really uh, enjoy very much, Um, you know, the two sides of the aisle and we we can, you know, they typically we worked together on most bills, but it was always, um, you know, there's always this political lens uh, if it's an election year and who gets to sponsor a bill, maybe based on how tough their race is, and you know, it it it's just a different environment. Yeah. Um, and there, and I loved it up there. There are benefits to that, and it was interesting, but it was also a new challenge to try to you know, have my own office and see what yeah. kinds of improvements I could make. Yeah, absolutely. It was an, an exciting new challenge. Um, and as a re- resident of Denver, I was glad that you took it on. Um, Thank you. So in your role as Denver District Attorney, you, know, you have a lot of important goals. Um, I read through them uh, in some of your material. And how do you focus and also delegate? Um. So, well, when I started, I had a number of things that I wanted to accomplish, um, you know, fairly quickly. 
And so I kind of focused on those first. For example, I wanted to separate the juvenile unit from, it was then combined with a drug unit um, because I believe that juvenile justice is among the most important things that we do. And I wanted to have a, a person in charge of that um, unit who was really committed to working on issues of juvenile justice and trying to do a better job, if you will. And so I did um, require the, the chief of that unit to commit to five years in the unit um, at a minimum so that we had consistency. That unit was typically just a pass through. So people would come and stay for a few months before they went into district, the felony court. And now we have people that, uh, it still has a couple of positions that are passed throughs, but we have people who are in there more permanently. Um, and so that was something I could do pretty much right away. Um, and the same with starting a human trafficking unit. Uh, I was able to do that fairly quickly because we had enough staff at that time. Um, and so, you know, being able to start those kinds of units right away was really um, gratifying. And then I was also interested in elder abuse um, and it wasn't right away, but that was on, that was on my goal list. And then I was able to, after a year or two, bring uh, in a, an attorney from the Boulder DA's office who did elder abuse. And so she started the elder abuse unit um, and, and that has been going really well. But in addition, I also wanted to look at alternatives to the traditional system. And that's when um, I realized that we didn't have an adult diversion program. We had a juvenile diversion program. Um, and so we started a pre-file diversion program for young adults, um, 18 to 26, because we know when people turn 18, their brains don't all of a sudden mature. <laughs> Right. <laughs> they become more responsible. Anyone who's been to college knows that's not the case. So um, I um, uh, started that program. Um, that, took a, uh, that took about a year to really get all the kinks worked out. And now um, we've changed it so it's no longer young adults. It's all adults uh, for diversion. And it has grown. I think we, we started with two um, diversion officers, they call them. It's like a case manager. And now we're expanding to six and our numbers have increased um, tremendously. So it has shown its um, success by our lack, lack of recidivism numbers and our successes with the people that go in the program. And I also wanted to start a restorative justice program. And um, we'd never had one of those in Denver. So Again, I was fortunate finally to get funding. I took a while to get funding for it, but um, I was able to hire a full-time attorney who used to be a public defender to come in and um, start and run our restorative justice program, which we do in connection with an outside community-based um, nonprofit, the Conflict Center. So, you know, I had these goals and I've been able to accomplish a lot of them. Um, and now we're doing, we're kind of focusing internally. We have been, for example, we weren't doing performance reviews for the attorneys. So we started doing those um, 
shortly after I started and we continue to refine those. And we also, um, we have changed the way we do promotions in the office. So it's more of a merit-based. Um, so there's been a lot of change within the office, which hasn't always been the smoothest, <laughs> but, um, but we're slowly getting there. And then my other, you know, another initiative that we've started is our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative, which when I first started, I um, bought everybody in the office a copy of the book, The New Jim Crow, which is written by Michelle Alexander. And it's about the impact of the criminal justice system on communities of color, primarily black young men. And um, it's a fascinating book. It's pretty dense, but um, about how the federal government can um, really influence what happens at the local level by the funding mechanisms. So if they offer a bunch of money for more drug arrests, then that's where, you know, that's DPD wants to apply for those kinds of grants to get more money. They have to follow the requirements. And so that means more drug arrests, right? Same with the prosecutor's office. If there's money available, then you may think, well, let's apply for that money so we can, can do this. Anyway, I'm getting off into the weeds, but she talks about how the impact of all that emphasis on drugs in the early 90s really had on African-American communities. Yeah. So I bought a copy of that for everybody in the office, and then we had some um, facilitated discussion groups. Um, and of course, now in the last year or so with the George Floyd <clears throat> protests, um, it's become much more of an issue, which is been helpful in continuing to have these discussions in the office. Um, so <clears throat> there is no shortage, there are no, there is no shortage of things that we can do. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, <clears throat> as someone you know that's been in the cannabis industry, has worked on drug policy reform, you know, criminal justice reform, I, I love the work that you're doing. And I, I wanted to ask uh, specifically about the Turning Over a New Leaf program. Yes. Um, yeah, thank you for asking about that. So that was a program that we um, decided to do because of people who had these marijuana convictions that were old and might still be influencing their ability to get jobs um, or housing and um, now that marijuana is legal in Colorado, um, it didn't seem appropriate that these folks who had these old convictions should still um, have those convictions on their records. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we worked with the city attorney's office because some of them were charged as municipal ordinance violations. And then we had the state uh, criminal law violations. And we were able to work with them to set up these clinics. I think we had five clinics throughout the, the city where people who had marijuana convictions could come in. And um, we had the city attorney there, we had our office there, and we had immigration attorneys and defense attorneys who volunteered <coughs> to come and meet with folks um, if they needed that kind of advice. But our office and the city attorney would actually fill out the forms for them to get um, the convictions sealed. 
And then uh, we were able to get um, one of the marijuana business groups covered the costs of filing because I think it was $65 to seal the cases. Um, and so if people were indigent, we were able to get their fees paid for. Um, <clears throat> so that was a really good uh program that was pretty exciting because we would be in the location and people would come in. A lot of people were initially hesitant to come in because they were afraid they'd get arrested or something. But um, as the word got out, I think more people took advantage. They could also apply online. We had a website um, to Great. apply online. But it was one of the things that was part of my approach is, you know, trying to help people move on when they've done their time and they're trying to become productive members of society. If they can't get a job because they have a criminal record, then that doesn't help anyone. And it's more likely to drive them back into illegal activity. Yeah. I think that that's incredibly important. Um, you know, the, the system was causing the cyclical effect to push people back into illicit activity and um, excited to see that effort and the uh, results of it. And you, know, you mentioned briefly uh, your, your restorative justice program. You know, I want to focus on that area some. Uh, your work with Restorative Denver's what initially brought us to meet. And um, I think it's an incredible program and would love for you just to share what that program is about. Sure, thank you for asking, because um, that's one of my signature programs and projects. Um, so the way restorative justice works is we have a full-time attorney who reviews the cases as they get filed um, along with our diversion, head of our diversion uh, program. They look at the cases and we have certain criteria. Um, we don't take, for example, um, you know, homicides or serious assaults or sex assaults or domestic violence at this point. Um, but they look at the cases and decide if the if they, the person looks like a like a good candidate for either diversion or restorative justice. Um, and also, so that's in the beginning, but also attorneys, once the cases are assigned to district attorneys, they can also refer uh, the case for either diversion or restorative justice. Um, so when they get the, uh, so that then if they conclude this is a good candidate, they will set an uh, appointment for the person to come in and um, they do an assessment. There's a, a, an assessment sort of process that they go through to see if the person has to take responsibility. They have to, they can't be blaming someone else for the crime. They have to admit that they committed the crime. And then they, they have to be willing to go through the process, which is not really an easy process. Um, so, and what that entails is they will sit down with um, one of the uh, staff members of the conflict center and talk about the crime, prepare for ultimately um, a meeting with the victim of the crime. And the conflict center also talks to the victim of the crime and talks to them about what happened and what they propose to have happened in the Ultimate, ultimately, there's a facilitated group conference, if you will. It's kind of there. It's based on the peacemaking circles of Native Americans um, and uh, the Maori in New Zealand. Um, so, the idea is that the defendant 
and his or her family or supports person and then the victim and um, his or her family and support person um, actually do have a discussion about what happened. So they sit in a circle and we have facilitators, trained facilitators, usually two. And then there are also community members who participate, who are also trained by the conflict center. And so the concept is that the defendant, by hearing what the impact was on this family, this person, um, it really brings home to the defendant that this was a real person, that this was a real crime, that there was real injury. Um, and it also gives the defendant a chance to explain what was going on with him or her and why they got involved in criminal activity. And it can be very powerful because they can, um, sometimes they know each other and, and that can be very powerful. Um, and it also, then they, they have an opportunity to discuss what might be a good resolution. So um, for example, there, it could be as simple as a letter of apology or restitution. We typically, we will get agreement to pay back damage that was done. Or in the case that I watched, it was a juvenile and he agreed to go work at the Boys and Girls Club for a certain number of hours a days. And so that's then monitored by the conflict center. And if they complete their requirements, um, the case is, is dismissed. So they have no, they have no record. Um, if they don't, then the case is, continues on in the regular course of criminal justice. But what's really been exciting is that um, we've had very, very low recidivism in the restorative Denver program, 1% so far. And it's been, wow. been in effect for a couple of years. Um, and we also get testimonials from people who go through it, who've talked about how it really changed their life. And um, I've, I've read some of them and it's, yeah. it's astounding. It's incredible. It's heartfelt. I mean, you're really giving some of these people another chance at life in many ways. And the fact that it requires them to get a true understanding of what they did and who, who they hurt, um, I, I think has to go a long way for the rest of their lives. I think so. Um, you know, one young woman, uh, I think you saw her letter, but she decided to go into criminal justice, you know, um, because she was fascinated with the process. And, um, and then I think... Uh, you know, I think for victims, it can also be very empowering because in a typical criminal case, the victim never talks, would never talk to a defendant, you know, and a, and a defense attorney is always going to tell his or her client, you don't say a word to, the, to anyone. Um, and I've seen it, you know, when um, we had an interesting experience with our, you know, there was a Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court case that said life without the possibility of parole is unconstitutional for juveniles. Um, so that's another example of something that that happened right about when I got elected. So I had 18 cases of juveniles who'd been convicted by our office who were serving life without the possibility of parole. So we had to go back through all of those and figure out what's, what was a good disposition. And just the reason I'm mentioning it is we had one case, it was a horrible, horrible case where a young teacher was killed in Denver. Um, and she was, it, she was um, 
working in, a, in an alternative school and trying to work with these young people who were in trouble. Anyway, um, one of the young men who ended up hitting her in the head with a rock, which is what ultimately killed her, um, was one of these cases and he was serving life without parole. So we, um, I talked to her sister because we always talk to the victims of the crime before we would make any kind of an offer or disposition. We tried to include them. And, um, you know, the family was uh, understanding that there had to be a new sentence and they were amenable to a reduction in his sentence. At least the sister was, she was the spokesperson for the family. Anyway, she wanted to come out when he got resentenced, which was great. And so met with her. She remembered our victim advocate was still here. So they, they worked together. Mm. Um, and she came to the courtroom and they knew what was going to happen. But the um, defendant wanted to speak to her. So he was trying to speak to her during the sentence after, you know, he wanted to make a statement. And the judge wouldn't let him turn around and face her, the, the sister and her friend. So I just got this wild idea after he left, he was taken back by the sheriffs. I asked the sister, would you like, would you be willing to speak to him? Because he clearly wants to talk to you. <clears throat> and um, she said, yes. The friend said no, but the sister said, yes, I'd like, I would. So we went down to the sheriff's office and we couldn't go in there because only lawyers were allowed in. So I asked the judge if we could bring um, him back up to the courtroom and she allowed us to do that. She was not present, but the sheriff was present and they allowed him to sit on one side of the, the bar, we call it, and the sister and her friend were on the other side. And he actually talked to her and apologized to her and um, talked about how horribly, you know, the whole thing. and. It was very moving and she accepted his apology and um, wished that he would, when he gets out, become productive. So that was not uh, an organized restorative justice program, but it was, I think, very empowering for the victim and, and giving her some closure about this guy and that he was very, very sorry and that he was going to try to um, have a better life. So, you know, a murder is a whole different kind of situation, but it, restorative justice has been done with murder cases. The, the, the person who's convicted is in prison and they do them in the prison setting. Um, but I think it can be very cathartic for the victim especially if it's someone they knew, because we have had cases where people knew each other. So anyway, I guess the bottom line is, I think there are alternatives to our traditional criminal justice system that in appropriate situations are, are a better way to resolve cases. You talked about you know a, a very <laughs> low 1% recidivism rate uh, within the restorative Denver program. Um, are there any other uh, interesting statistics that you can share on that? Well, um, I'm trying to remember how many people we've had go through it now. Um, I think it's over a hundred. And um, of those, you know, we've only had one repeater. Um, wow. So that's pretty amazing. Um, and then our diversion program has about, I think, a 7%. I might be wrong. There might be a little higher than that. Um, it has a low 
recidivism rate as well. Um, and that's been very encouraging. The diversion program is a little more intensive. So they are on, they're supervised for a longer period of time, usually up to nine months. And so that program is, is probably better designed for someone who needs more treatment. Like they can refer them to mental health treatment, to substance abuse treatment, um, job training, things of that nature. So, um, so that program is, uh, has been very successful in helping people really change their trajectory. Um, you know, help people get into school, help people get jobs, that kind of thing. Um, and so we have very good statistics there as well. And our demographics, we're very careful to make sure that the program reflects, the programs reflect the demographics of people in the community. So we have uh, quite a, a, a diverse population in our restorative Denver program and in our diversion program. These programs, in my opinion, are truly setting an example for the rest of the country in terms of new ways to treat justice. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm curious, one, you know, is that setting that example something you set out to do? And two, you know, is there national discussion within DAs across the country uh, about these types of topics? Yes, it was one of my goals. Uh, and one of the reasons I ran for office was so I could start some alternative programs. And we do talk about it. I belong to a couple of national DA organizations and there is a lot more interest in it now than when I first started. <laughs> I will say the National DA's Association, which tends to be the more conservative of the groups, they just are publishing a national map that pinpoints where there are diversion programs in DA's offices. That's just happening right now. Um, you know, and so I think over the last five years since I've been in office, it's um, definitely uh, been, there's been a lot more interest in alternatives uh, and a lot more funding. You know, yeah. finally, we're able to get grants and get funding from the budget from our cities and so forth. So, um, yeah, I think it's definitely made a difference nationally. It's, it's great to see those things trending in the right direction. And, um, you know, I'm curious what the long-term goals are for you with these programs and, you know, what the best way to grow these programs are. So long-term, I want to continue to expand them. We just got a grant from Caring for Denver so that we can hire two more diversion officers. And we just expanded our restorative justice. Right now, we're, we were sending about six to eight cases a month. And we now have gotten um, adequate funding for 10 cases a month. Um, and the conflict center does, we help them with a fundraiser. And so that has helped. And also we've been able to get some funding from the city. Uh, in addition to my employee, I've been able to get funding for the program itself. Um, so as we continue to expand, I'm hoping that we will continue to see the positive results and we'll be able to continue to expand. And the conflict center, because of the fundraising and our ability to pay for the cases, um, they've now hired a full-time person. They had a part-time person, but now we have a full-time person who can monitor these cases and get all the logistics established. And I see no reason that we can't continue to expand other than funding. Um, right. 
because I think we can, we have enough cases that people are willing to send, but it's just a slow process. You have to get the buy-in from the deputy DAs and from the public defenders. Um, and so I do think that we'll see continued growth um, as, as we see these. I, I, I must comment that I, I'm disappointed with the rise in violent crime um, in Denver and nationwide, all over the metro area actually, because I do think that when there is more crime, the, the immediate response is, well, we need to put more people in jail. Um, and that's certainly true as far as the people who commit the violent crime, but it, it kind of um, makes it harder for, to get the funding for the alternative programs um, when there's a, an environment of increased crime. Yeah, yeah, it's something I've heard a bit about lately in the criminal justice reform circles, you know, that people are just automatically assuming that these reforms are something that are, is causing an increase in crime when it's, you know, statistically not the case, it's not coming from, from these individuals. Um, but it's, it's definitely a frustration. And um, I'm curious, you know, about your thoughts of the rise in crime in, in general and you know, how it potentially relates to mental health and substance abuse issues. So I think there are a number of reasons for the rising crime. I mean, I wish I had the magic bullet so we could stop it. <laughs> but um, you know, I do think that the pandemic had an Im impact because um, crime had really been decreasing. Um, it started to get a little bit higher, but it was decreasing by and large. Um, and I think just that disruption to our routines, disruption to our social institutions, you know, our schools and our churches and community centers and rec centers and all those things were closed. Uh, people didn't have their normal human outlets, you know, and they couldn't really go out and do much. And it was so I think there was a lot of anxiety. People were quitting jobs. People were losing jobs. And um so the economic instability of it. And I think personally, I think the proliferation of guns has had a big impact. They're just so accessible now. Um, and people have had a lot of home burglaries where guns are stolen or shot, you know, gun shops being burglarized. Um, and so I think it's a combination of a lot of factors. Um, I think it's, uh, it's really frustrating though, because we don't really know um, what is causing it. Although I do think that um, some of it is going down a little bit now, but the murder rate continues. We continue to have a lot of murders and that's really disturbing. Um, but I don't think it's the reform movement because the people that we've been seeing in our programs are not the ones that are out committing murders or assaults. Um, but, you know, clearly there's a tension going on right now between law enforcement and the legislature and more reform-minded prosecutors um, because it's, it's easy to point fingers and not have to think about the real causes like poverty and lack of education and um, lack of job opportunities and things like that that are so prevalent. Well, I hope that the results and the data that you gather from your current programs allow for them, their funding to be significantly increased and 
for you to continue to set an example for other parts of the country and um, you know really help other departments learn how they can do similar things. Yeah, and back to your question about how are we going to expand it. One of the things we have done, we started the restorative justice program in um, misdemeanors because we wanted to get the buy-in, frankly. We wanted to try it in lower level crimes and see how, how it worked. Um, and that was successful. So we did that for a year and, and uh, we've, it's been expanded to felonies for the last about a year and we are getting felony cases. Um, it's interesting because a lot of the deputy DAs who were in misdemeanor court, which is where you start, have now moved into our felony courts. So they're, they're familiar with the program and are supporting it. Um, so that's a way we're expanding. We're now doing felonies and we also are looking at perhaps some kinds of crimes that we haven't necessarily done in the past, like some of the assaults. Um, we, we just did a carrying a concealed weapon and we're gonna do, we've done about five of those. So, you know, we're trying to look at what kinds of crimes are we going to um, accept? And the same with diversion, you know, looking at the kinds of crimes and whether we can be taking more um, even violent crimes or sort of violent crimes <laughs> because we wanna intervene. We, we would like those people to be changing their um, life lives as well yeah. um so, so there's plenty yeah. of i think opportunity to expand well i look forward to uh seeing that evolve and helping as i'm able to thank you yes you've been a great supporter i, I appreciate it and um you know we you're certainly one of the most accomplished and awarded guests that i have had your resume is incredible and um, you know, I just, I wanted to mention a couple of things I found super interesting. You're, you're a founding member of the Colorado, Colorado Women's Bar Association. Yes. Yes. Uh, that was quite a while ago. <laughs> we didn't have a women's bar. Um, yeah, I was active in the Denver Bar Association and the Colorado Bar Association, but there weren't that many women attorneys in Denver. And so um, one of the ones who'd been around longer, because I was pretty young, um, decided to get us all together, or get the ones together that she knew and see if people were interested in putting together um, a bar association just for women. And um, everybody was interested in doing that. So, um, so we started it, we were concerned initially that the, we call it the big bar, the, the Colorado bar and the Denver bar would not be receptive. Um, but uh, the executive director of both bars was a guy named Chuck Turner, who um, just retired recently, but he was really, um, really helpful. I mean, he was not uh, antagonistic at all and was supportive of having a separate bar association. Um, and so that made, I think that made a big difference. And, um, you know, initially some of the women in the big law firms were, reluctant to join. They were afraid that their firms would, they wouldn't make partner or their firms wouldn't be, um, the firms would not like it if they joined a women's bar. I mean, this was, this was a long time ago. Women were not allowed to go into the university club um, even, which was uh, really kind of obnoxious because um, that's where some of the lunches would be held. 
and women, women couldn't be members, I should say. They could go in if they went in the side door. They weren't allowed to come in the front door. Ridiculous. And so, um, you know, it was, it was pretty, um, it was, I, a lot of the young women today don't have a clue about what it was like then. Yeah. <laughs> because, um, you know, just, it, it was just very different. And so anyway, the women's bar um, thrived and we got a lot of support from judges. They would come to our conventions and we, we used to put on a show called The Untimely Motions, where a bunch of us would tap dance and um, do skits. You know, it was kind of a, a politically incorrect humor. Um, and uh, we had the shows were great. People used to come just for the shows. Um, and then, and then it, 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 uh, died down a little bit. Um, uh, but I'm very happy to say in the last 10 years, it's really flourished and they're really active, do a lot. Now they have a lobbyist that works with the Capitol to pass legislation and a lot of good work on insurance issues and just generally very, um, helpful for getting women appointed as judges. When that was, I was the first judicial chair and that was a big thing. We didn't even know how judges got appointed. There were very, very few women and we didn't have any federal judges that were women. So one of the big goals was to get more women appointed. And I think we were successful at that. We got the first woman judge appointed to the federal bench, Zita Wangchenk, um, and a number of women appointed to the, to the lower courts or to the state courts. And, um, so just a lot of, you know, we had a lot of goals and um, we've been able to accomplish most of them, but there's always more to do. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's incredible to see how much change there has been since then. And I know that that particular association has been very impactful. And, um, you know, we've talked about a lot of really impactful work that you've done. You know, I think some of this potentially came through when we were talking about your restorative justice and uh, diversion programs, but do you have a specific story that comes to mind uh, of when you really saw how directly your work can affect change? Well, I would point to one of the restorative justice circles that I attended. Because um, I have to tell you, Jeff, in the beginning, I was a little bit of a skeptic. I'm thinking, okay, we're all going to sit around, hold hands, and sing Kumbaya um, but after somebody's committed a crime. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to really see how this all worked. So I went and watched one of the juvenile ones and it was really interesting because I read the case before I went and I went, oh, this is kind of a nothing case. Um, it was a situation where a student and it was in an alternative school, uh, a student in the class had borrowed the teacher's car, um, during lunch break and without permission. And um, nothing happened. I mean, no, there was no injury. There was no accident or anything. And he brought it back. But so I read this and I'm like, well, this is like really not a very significant case because, of course, I read rape cases and murder cases and so forth. But I thought, OK, well, this this won't be much of a deal. So I went and watched. Well, it turns out that the teacher, she was a new teacher and she felt like she had developed this trust with her class. It was a fairly small class. She knew all the students and she felt um, like she was really had this relationship with them. So when her keys disappeared from her desk, she was gone uh, out of the office or out of the room. 
she reported it to like the school resource officer and he said, oh, it's one of your students. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. None of my students would steal my car. I just wouldn't do that. Well, they watched the video, you know, schools have all those cameras. And sure enough, it was one of her students um, bringing this car back in. And uh, the impact that that had on her was uh, much greater than I could have imagined. She felt like she wasn't a good teacher. Maybe she was in the wrong profession, that she couldn't trust her students, that they didn't like her, they didn't respect her. All this stuff that, you know, to me, I'm kind of, you know, jaded with criminal behavior. So to me, it was just, oh, the kids saw the keys and took them and came back. But um, the impact it had on her was so significant. And then, so she explained all that. And then the kid was there with his two parents. His father turned out worked for Denver Public Schools and was a, um, I think he was a truant officer. I'm not entirely sure. Anyway, his father basically started crying during this thing because he was so upset that his son would do something like this. And so, you know, me being kind of the jaded person, I'm, I'm thinking this is really no big deal. And I watched these people interact and have this enormous impact because the kid told the teacher, no, you are one of my favorite, you are my favorite teacher. Um, you know, I really like you and respect you. And I think that just lifted this huge weight off her shoulders, you know, and, um, and for him to um, acknowledge that he did this, it, that it really didn't have anything to do with her as a teacher. Um, you know, he was just a kid. And, um, and the impact it had on his parents, I think, was also pretty astounding. <laughs> Yeah. You know, because sometimes parents will come in and try to be defensive and, you know, the teacher did something and, you know, they just were really upset and they decided. So the teacher said to him, you know, I've always viewed you as a role model for other students because he was a big kid and um, and really liked you. And I think you would be really good if you worked at a boys and girls club. So they arranged for him to work at the boys and girls club a certain number of hours or days. And that was what he was going to do to repay her for what he had done to her. So it seemed so minor, but in terms of those two individuals, I I'm pretty sure that kid was never going to do something like that again. Yeah. Um, you know? So yeah, I saw that impact and thought, you know, this is a kid who could have gone a different way, but I'm pretty sure he's going to go the right way. And this is a That's teacher who might've given up teaching. Who shouldn't give up teaching? I mean, that speaks to the power of understanding, you know, the individuals and the true stories behind an incident. Something that looks very minor on paper is actually something that's really affecting these individuals' lives. And um, it's it's really awesome that your program was able to bring them, you know, this closure. Yeah. And I also saw a case um, on a much, much, much more serious level, uh, a juvenile case where a young girl had ended up killing her brand new baby. Um, and there's a long, I won't go into all the history of that, but the question was, should she be filed on as an adult or as a juvenile? And I was really on the fence about it because she was young. Um, but my juvenile folks really felt it, she, there would be more options if we um, charged her as an adult. So 
we went ahead and did that. And then there was a transfer hearing and I listened to the transfer, the reverse transfer hearing. And honestly, the, the judge decided to send it back to juvenile. And I was honestly happy with that result because after listening to all of the testimony and thinking more about the case, I think it was a case that belonged in juvenile. So that was because I passed that bill that that young woman was ending up in the juvenile court, not the adult wow. court. So, I mean, yeah, it's funny how- I mean, that, that is really direct impact right there. You're seeing your bill in action and um, it's it's gotta just feel like you've accomplished something at least to, to see that and, you know, really seeing the change you're creating. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> sometimes it works. Yeah. Uh, can you recall an experience from childhood that showed you the importance of giving back? Oh, wow. Um, well, I do remember a trip that um, my church went on in Virginia. You know, we lived in southeastern Virginia and there was a lot of poverty around Blacksburg, Virginia. So we went to um, the very western part of Virginia, which is poor. And we, we went to churches and helped with some of the activities that the churches were doing and outreach to um, the communities, particularly people who were very poor um, and tried to provide uh, clothing and food and things of that nature. And, um, you know, it was a pretty impactful visit because I hadn't really been exposed to that kind of poverty in any, you know, organized way. Um, so that maybe had some impact on wanting to help people in who are in worse situations. So I would say that. That sounds like a powerful experience. And, um, you know, throughout your, uh, your career, has there been anyone in particular that you've considered a mentor? So I would say um, a couple of people. My um, first law job was law clerk for uh, Judge Sherman Feinsilver, who is no longer with us, but he was a federal judge in district court. And um, I just learned a lot there about litigation, about law, about how cases develop and how they um, how they can how they get resolved. Um, and I was only the second woman that he had had. Actually, I was the first woman clerk full time that he had, and I was only the second woman that the law that the court had ever had. Wow. So I kind of felt like I had the weight of womanhood, you know, on my shoulders. If I screwed up, it was going to be bad. Um, and um, so he was very influential. And, you know, I was very young and just learned a lot from him about how cases get decided. And I was able to write some opinions for him and so forth. And then the other one um, was Dale Tooley, who was the DA who hired me initially. Um, he's also no longer with us. You see how old I am, but um, he was, um, you know, his philosophy about being a DA was to do the right thing that we're here to do justice. We're not here to put notches in our belts and we're not here to put people away 
for as long as possible uh, in all cases. We really want to do justice. And so that was the that was the guiding principle that I grew up in in a DA's office, um, which this office I think has continued to follow um, throughout, you know, Bill Ritter and Norm Early and uh, Mitch. And um, I think that's, God, that's probably it since, yeah. So, I mean, I think that he had a big impact uh, watching how he uh, felt justice should be done and how cases should be handled. Um, I think he was a, quite uh, an impressive mentor. Well, it sounds like both of their influences carried along throughout your career. And um, I'm sure that, you know, despite their not being with us, they would be uh, impressed to see how you've implemented their wisdom. Oh, thank you. Yes, yeah. I hope so. So, you know, I like to, to throw in little personal interesting notes about my guests. And you shared with me that you climbed to the base camp of Mount Everest and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Yes, I like to climb mountains. <laughs> I've climbed about 32 of the Colorado 14ers. Um, you know, if I'd thought more about it when I was younger, I would have probably done more, but I'm still doing them. I did um, two last summer and I'm hoping to do two this coming summer. Um, so I do really like the outdoors. I, I love Colorado. I love being able to go to the mountains. And um, uh, I, I really enjoy um, nature and physical activity. And, you know, I think it's important for all of us to take advantage of the place we live. Absolutely. I mean, Colorado is tremendous for that. And um, it's great to hear that you still make the time to enjoy those activities. And uh, I was told I should ask you about your most recent ski trip. <laughs> yes, so two weeks ago. So I just got back from um, skiing in the French Alps. Um, but I think what Carolyn's probably referring to is that I went two things. I did a zip line between two big mountains. There's a valley and you zip line over it while people are skiing below you. <laughs> wow. And um, on my birthday, which was February 10th, I did a paraskiing experience where you're, you know, it's like paragliding, but you have your skis on. So you start by, you have their tandem. So someone is with you who knows what they're doing, but you ski, you start by skiing down this pretty steep slope and then the parachute pulls you up and you just glide and then land. Um, you land on a uh, flat spot so you don't have to wow. ski while you land. Wow, I, I haven't really heard of fun. that before. I've uh, yeah, been I parasailing, but never paraskiing. I hadn't seen it either. I'm sure it will eventually come to Colorado, you know, because it's a way for the ski areas to, you know, make money. <laughs> yep, all right, those come quickly. Uh, that sounds like it was a really interesting experience. Yeah, it was great. And the mountains were great. It's much, it's a huge area over there and lots of people skiing. So it was really fun. Uh, my last question is one that I've, you know, been asking every guest. It's been really fun to see the variations and answers and how they compare. And uh, the question is this, if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate? Oh, gosh, I guess I'd, I'd fix poverty. I mean, that's a pretty classic answer, but I think poverty is the root of a lot of criminal behavior. Um, and I think it's also the root of, you know, people getting into drugs and selling drugs. And, um, and I think drug addiction is 
Um, and that's probably the other thing I would change if I could, but I think that that's such a terrible, um, just such a terrible influence on people. Um, and I, and I just think so much of the unhappiness and, um, you know, criminal behavior, unhappiness, just, uh, bad things are related yeah. to poverty. Um, although I guess in the current climate, I might say preventing people from invading other countries, but yeah, <laughs> I won't yeah. go there. No, that's, <laughs> Hopefully that's, that's not so common. Yeah. Um, well, I think that poverty, while you say it might be a, a standard answer is certainly impactful. I think more so than people, especially that are not impoverished realize, you know, just that is creates a tremendous trickle down effect in someone's life. And uh, and what they need to do to survive. And um, certainly a world without poverty would be a much better one. Yeah, wouldn't that be amazing? So you've told us today about some really great work and initiatives that you're working on. Uh, for those listening that are interested, what is the best way for them to support you and your impact? Um, well, you know, we the Restorative Denver program does take volunteers for our community. Um, members and also for our facilitators, you know, if people are interested in doing that, they can just email my, our general email is info at denverda.org. Um, or if there's a particular uh, program that, that, you know, like we, our diversion program um, contracts with providers. So substance abuse treatment, mental health treatment, things of that nature. Um, so if people have programs that they think we might be interested in, working with for our diversion clients. Um, they can also get uh, send that information, and particularly with juveniles. Um, we have just started a handgun intervention program with juveniles, and we are partnering with community members to um, provide mentors for the kids, and also um, if they have any kind of program that might be of benefit. So, you know, any of those, any of those things would be good opportunities to get involved. Um, you know, I have a foundation, which you're a member of, Jeff, but we haven't been very active. <laughs> um, but, you know, if people are interested in, in monetary con contributions, we're happy to do that. It's a 501c3, and we've been supporting mostly the restorative justice program through that foundation. Um, and that, again, the info at denverda.org is the best place. I have someone monitoring that every day, and um, she sends me ones that you know, are, are appropriate for me to look at. Um, so anything like that would be very welcome. Um, okay. So, and then serve on juries. If you get jury service, it's a very important part of our criminal justice system or our whole justice system. And um, so I encourage people to report crime to the Denver Police Department and to, um, serve on juries if they get called, to be witnesses if they get called to be witness to a case. So help us you know, keep the community safe. And um, if there are victim groups that work with victims of crime, we, um, you know, we have active victim advocate program here. And we you know, are always interested in, in resources that we can refer victims of crime to. Um, we didn't really talk too much about the prosecution piece of the office, but that is really our primary role and our biggest role. Um, so we do 
uh, want to work with victims of crime to make sure that they are um, informed about the process and kept informed and that they get resources that they need because um, that's a big piece of our work as well. So, you know, anything, any, anything that people are curious about in the criminal justice system, we're happy to provide information. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. And um, really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and to give listeners an opportunity to hear the incredible programs that you're working on. Um, you know, I look forward to continuing our discussion and to continuing to help you uh, reform the justice system. Thank you. Great talking to you. Yeah, likewise. All right. Well, have a good afternoon. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are the Answer. To find out more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.